Hello and welcome to Bunker Start Your Week on another scary morning as we start to understand what war in Europe means. The story of the weekend has been the fierce resistance that Ukrainians have mounted to Vladimir Putin's invading army, but also the firmness of the response from the EU and Putin's decision to put his nuclear weapons on alert. Joining me to discuss what that means is Arthur Snell, security consultant, ex-foreign office man and presenter of the Doomsday Watch podcast. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Roz. Arthur, have you been surprised by the level of resistance in Ukraine? Yes, definitely. I think it's an object lesson in the power of leadership. Clearly, President Zelensky, I don't know whether Putin underestimated him, but I certainly did and lots of other people did. But he has proved himself to have been a remarkable wartime leader. And this has meant basically that the Ukrainians feel ready to to resist what is obviously a foreign invasion force. Putin's operation either wasn't expecting much resistance or it was badly prepared logistically or conceivably both. I think the question lots of us are asking now is, will he now ramp it up? Will there be bigger, even more devastating attacks on Ukraine? Yeah, and and that is evidently the question, because if he can't take Kiev in a fairly low-key way with fairly small groups of special forces, which is what was happening the last few days, then is he going to try and pulverise the city, basically? Now, there is, there's a tank column, you know, which, which people can find information about this, various news, news agencies and so on. There's a tank column that has very slowly been advancing towards Kiev, which hasn't got there as nearly as quickly as it should have, partly because of all the anti-tank weapons that have been supplied by Western countries, UK included. But the the other thing that Putin has done is he's brought the the Belarus military into this war, which, of course, completes the process by which Belarus has gone from being an independent pro-Russian state to being effectively an annexed part of the Russian Federation. I think the final question is whether or not Putin will use devastating weapons such as thermobaric or other types of aerial warfare and, and just kind of flatten the city, which... He doesn't want to do that, not because of any humanity on his side, but obviously it, it makes his job much harder when he's pretending that he's liberating Ukraine. There are apparently going to be peace talks on a border. Are these peace talks meaningful or are they a chance for both sides to buy time? I think they must be a chance for both sides to buy time. It's impossible to believe that these talks in the midst of a conflict can resolve anything. It's so flagrantly you know, bizarre. The, the the Russians, you had Putin saying that they were drug dealers and, and gangsters or whatever, that, you know, the leaders of Ukraine. It's, you, you can't resolve something that, that crazy at a, at a peace negotiation, which is, which is, by the way, being led at a fairly mid-level. So the people in the room, they won't have the power to sort of reverse a military advance or something. But I think it may be that both sides want to buy a bit of time. I think it's very important for the Ukrainians and, and again, this shows good leadership from Zelensky, not to be seen to be rejecting these overtures uh, or ruling out peace talks because they, they continue to have, by a very long degree, you know, the upper hand morally in all of this, in the sense that they're saying, yes, of course, we'll, we'll, we'll have peace talks. But clearly, you know, they're not going to just sort of give away vast tracts of, of their own country over those talks. The rather frightening development yesterday was that Putin announced that he had stepped up his nuclear readiness, put his nuclear weapons on high alert. We can guess what he's trying to signal here, but can you see a world in which he could use a nuclear weapon? I mean, I was 
reading the BBC's Steve Rosenberg's take on that this morning. And he said, well, you know, someone was, was telling him maybe Putin could think of exploding a nuclear weapon over the North Sea and my jaw dropped open. Is this kind of thing really on the table? Yeah, it's well, it's interesting. The first thing I think one should say as a note of reassurance to listeners in these very unreassuring times is that the Russians do this relatively often. I did a little bit of kind of research to remind myself. They they threatened Denmark in 2016. I can't even remember why. It was some some Arctic question and I think it was. So it's it's not it's not unheard of for the Russians to to issue these these sort of ghoulish warnings. I think the other thing to try to separate is the difference between the long range nuclear weapons that Russia has as part of that sort of classic Cold War mutually assured destruction and of course Britain and France and the US we all have these ghastly weapons and so-called tactical nuclear weapons. So that those are things that you would use which which have a much smaller range but of course are still they're still nukes and they're still devastating that would you would use in a more of a kind of battlefield context now my personal view is that we should be focused slightly more on that because the the kind of russian military doctrine includes the use of such weapons in 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 a more kind of normal environment than than we might imagine and so basically if if for example putin thinks that his his war in ukraine is really not going the right way you can't rule out him using a, that kind of weapon there now of course at that point he, he's completely lost any sense that he's somehow saving ukraine from from gangsters and drug dealers so it yeah it's very it's very difficult to assess sort of where this leads but my personal view is that in in terms of Putin suddenly threatening the West with nuclear weapons. I don't think he's going to do it. I think he's smart enough to know, for all that he's made some terrible decisions in recent weeks, he's smart enough to know that that it could be the you know the end of Russia in days if he escalates out of control. And, and I don't think he'll go there. So the EU has stepped up to this crisis in a way that some, many even, didn't predict a few days ago. What are the big seismic geopolitical moves that we've seen over the weekend? Well, they have been huge. So the EU, in concert with America, has basically made it almost impossible to, for the Russians to access their foreign reserves. And that's a massive change because at the start of this war, one of the points that everyone was making was that, you know, Russia, it, the average Russian doesn't necessarily live a particularly high quality of life. But Russia's economy is in a very solid space and they've got this massive sort of bank account of foreign reserves. Well, that basically doesn't work for them anymore. So that's one thing. And and that had to be the EU, because ultimately you're looking at huge economic blocks that can take these decisions. The next thing is, is this thing of supplying weapons. Now, the EU, as as everyone will know, has, has been very uncomfortable about getting too far into the military space, both in terms of building up its own military capabilities and in terms of offering military support to other countries. But we shouldn't forget that across the EU, countries that you might think of as as fairly sort of peaceable nations have quite extensive arms industries, Belgium, Sweden. But the point I'm making is the EU is capable of manufacturing an enormous amount of of very sort of high-tech weaponry. And the EU has now said they're going to supply Ukraine. And uh, Josep Borrell, the, the foreign policy EU leader, said that they might even be supplying fighter jets. So we're talking right at the cutting edge 
of sort of EU technology. And then the third thing that EU had done, sort of showing major leadership at that kind of strategic level, has basically said Ukrainians can come. You've got three years, just come if you're a refugee, if, you, if, you know, if you've been displaced by conflict, and we'll figure it out later, which is you know, a classic example of taking the big leadership decisions. And then just to sort of complete this point, it's not the EU, but in concert with that, Germany, you know, of course, the EU's biggest economy, arguably its most important country, has just doubled its defence budget. So after decades of Germany being a country that is is very cautious and possibly uncomfortable about having a powerful military, they've just decided they're going to have one. So all of this has happened over the weekend. And there's the move to exclude Russia from the SWIFT payment system, banking payment system, isn't there? Yeah, as well as excluding Russian aviation from, from sort of EU skies. So it's, it's a very, very extensive array of measures. And, and again, it, it really changes the way you know, people think of the EU as this slow moving organisation, can't take big decisions, unable to kind of seize, seize the moment. And they've really um, upended that uh, in the in the last sort of 48 hours, basically. And the invitation to come to the EU has been taken up by, I think, 368,000 refugees have already fled Ukraine and many of them, most of them, I think, to Poland. What's the situation with the UK here? Because obviously we're no longer in the EU and there has been a somewhat mealy-mouthed offer over the weekend of immediate families of Ukrainians being able to come here which was heavily criticised by by Labour. What's your sense about the way this is going? Are we going to make an offer to Ukrainians? Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that our inadequate policy will evolve very quickly and will end up looking very similar to the EU's one. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we, we never quite managed to get where they've got because it, it, it's a sort of article of faith for the Home Office that, you know, we're, we're always going to be less welcoming to, to refugees than, than other, other countries around us. But I mean, if we just think of the, the realities of this, Nobody needs reminding where Ukraine is on the map. We are an island. We're as far west as you can get in Europe from the, from Eastern Europe. In practical terms, the numbers of Ukrainians coming here is, is going to be minute compared to Poland, Germany, all those states that are right up there on or near the front line. And it, it just seems to me, once again, it shows, whilst there is leadership being shown both in Ukraine and in the EU, there's very little evidence of leadership being shown in this country. Though I heard that Boris Johnson was cheered when he went to a Ukrainian church yesterday and promised all kinds of support. So clearly there is an appetite, but whether he's going to supply is another question. There was an interesting intervention from Liz Truss. I say interesting. She said that people who wanted to go the other way and fight in Ukraine to defend Ukraine were welcome to do so. I was quite surprised by that move. Were you? I was a bit. I mean, I'm surprised she allowed herself to be drawn. Now, the the so-called international brigades, you know, we've all We've all read the stories of the Spanish Civil War. More recently, there have been international brigades fighting on the side of the Syrian Kurds against ISIS up in um, in northern Syria. One of those, in fact, we interviewed on the bunker a few months back, if people are interested. But it is still, you know, th- this is clearly an incredibly dangerous situation. People with the best of intentions might think they're going to go and help. They might be doing the opposite of that. They might be just, you know, basically a bit of sort of unwanted baggage, people who may not have appropriate skills or experience. And of or course, speak Ukrainian. You know, yeah. So I, I'm rather surprised, I, I, not least because I imagine the actual numbers will be tiny, 
so it seems to me that she's just created now a national debate about something where it's probably best we certainly shouldn't criminalize these people and, and stupidly the government has done that in in the past with some who fought against isis but nor i think should we make a big deal of it and sort of encourage perhaps some people who, who really are, aren't best placed to make a, a sound decision about you know where their best interests lie Some parts of Britain, and especially the centre-left, I think, over the weekend, have become deeply emotionally invested in this war. It's been remarkable how fast that's happened. How did Ukraine's social media enable that to happen? Well, it's been remarkable, I agree. And we have to remember that this is an information operation. Now, I, you know, it, to state from the outset, I think Ukraine has every right to defend itself and therefore it's I, I hope that its information operations succeed and they are succeeding. But this is what it is. And so just as Russia uses, you know, RT and other sort of far left voices to magnify its case, Ukraine has managed very successfully, much more successfully than Russia, to motivate people who are kind of see themselves as liberals, as Democrats, as people who believe in the sort of international rules based system. So what have they done? Well, one, they've got a president who his entire life, you know, he's a performer, he's a he's a comedian, he's 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 somebody who's who's extremely good at communication. Some of the other senior Ukrainians have also got that background. You've got a lot of very articulate, you know, dare I say photogenic Ukrainian politicians who speak very good English, who are who are coming up and, and talking about their lives. And then the, this thing of taking stories that are powerful, moving stories of heroism and, and the tough decisions that come in conflict and making sure, sure that those stories rise up to the surface. So we probably have all heard the story of the young Ukrainian soldier who blew the mine on a bridge, you know, giving up his own life in order to prevent the Russian advance. We've probably all seen videos of young Ukrainian children saying goodbye to their fathers who are staying behind to defend Kiev and other big cities. And, and I could go on. So I think it's very impressive, but it's also very interesting to see that Ukraine has a sophisticated and very effective information operations capability. And, and that's what we're experiencing. There are almost shades of the French resistance I see in this in terms of individual heroism standing up it's all these all these things emerging i i completely agree and and i think the ukrainians have managed to to sort of tap into a narrative which for almost any person in europe they can immediately situate this you you don't need to say this is like the nazis everyone gets the analogy and as you say you start thinking about yes the french resistance or or other kinds of a very very heroic resistance against a, a powerful army which represents a tyrannical regime and one which has already declared that a lot of your country is peopled by Nazis and and you know other sort of extremist groups so you've already been you know written off by Russia as as sort of having a legitimate right to exist and therefore your 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 reasons for fighting to the end are are you know enhanced and we learned more about Zelensky over the weekend as you say a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, people were writing him off. The organisations I was working with were saying, well, he's a comedian, what's he going to do? We don't have much hope for him. And of course, this this weekend, that, that side of him, that entertainment, that ability has, has really become apparent. And in fact, we became aware that he was the voice of Paddington in the Ukrainian version of the Paddington movie. 
which I thought I mean, was a hoax for a moment. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. Is it that there's sort of is there no limit? You know, and I'm sure others have seen his performance on Ukraine's version of Strictly, which I think he won. And whilst I am never going to be a judge on Strictly, he seemed to be bloody good at it. So you know, you know, he's got a lot going for him in that regard. And and as you say, people did write him off at the beginning. And let's not forget, this is the same Zelensky that Trump did that notorious phone call on, where Trump basically threatened to remove. America's support, security and military support to Ukraine, but unless that, you know, Zelensky would cook up a fake story on on Hunter Biden and Zelensky didn't do it for him. So, I mean, you know, it's it's in some respects bizarre the way that Ukraine, yes, a big and important country in European terms, but has become this sort of fulcrum of so many major global political stories over the past five years. We'll move off Ukraine now, on to briefly France. Emmanuel Macron is about to announce he'll run for a second term as president, which is no surprise, really. But he was widely thought to have handled Putin badly in the last couple of weeks, although, of course, the EU's credibility has now grown and his credibility with it. But I was wondering if what you thought about the pro-Russian stance of some of his opponents, like the Pen, and whether that would actually help him in the May elections. It seems to me that, you know, in a moment of great turmoil and uncertainty, you don't sort of take a punt on a slightly fringe candidate, you know, and and just as Trump was able to get elected in 2016, because, you know, although that seems like a very remote world now, people sort of were fighting against a, a lazy assumption that Clinton had it sewn up. But in 2020, with a pandemic running, that this slightly chaotic and bizarre president, you know, was was rather less appealing. And so obviously, I, I can't judge every individual voter in France any more than anyone else can. But it would seem to me that someone like Le Pen, who it she's her links to Russia are very clear. I mean, Russia lent money to her party at one point, it's going to be quite hard. And she's already been always been arguing against, you know, the EU and, and talks about we should be France alone and doing our own thing. Well, it's going to be quite hard, I think, for that argument to carry much weight right now. So even if Macron's specific sort of missteps are arguable with, with, with Putin over the kind of attempt to take diplomacy as far as it could go, might stand against him. I think in the big picture, you're going to look at look at Le Pen and, and, and the other fringe candidates, Zemmour and so on, and say, well, we, this now is not the time to, to kind of experiment with one of those. And finally, the policing bill is back in the Commons today after the Lords voted down some of its worst elements. But the crackdown on noisy protest is still there. It struck me that this is a bad look for the government when hundreds of thousands of people are gathering peacefully in EU capitals to oppose the invasion. Have you been following the progress of the bill? Yes. So the House of Lords, you know, as is often the case, this unelected, very troubling constitutional anomaly sometimes delivers the goods in protecting our our liberal rights, which is all a bit confusing. And so it it sort of stripped out various elements of this bill, which are now go back to the Commons and the government will put them back in again. But as you say, protests across Europe, you know, that's another way in which Europe has sort of stepped up over the weekend, although to be fair, there were protests in London as well, of course. But across European cities, we've had massive protests in support of Ukraine. And these are just the sorts of protests that the new bill makes much harder. Now, of course, you'll have the government saying, no, 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 
that this bill is just to give us the power to manage the antisocial ones. And, you know, these ones would be fine. But there's a fun, much more fundamental question here, which is we're watch, watching a war between autocracy and democracy. And in our country, in its own rather small and pathetic way, it's trying to reduce democracy. It's trying to make it easier for a more autocratic version of government to, to be carried out. And ultimately, it does seem a strange time to make it harder for citizens in a democracy to protest about things. It certainly does. That's the end of Start Your Week. Thanks for joining me, Arthur. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you like, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archibald and Yanon Sofonievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.